Hello, and welcome to the Meaningfulistic Podcast. I am your host, Gabriel Gonzalez, and I'm asking questions about what matters, to who, and why, in the deepest, most personal sense. This is an exploration to find deep meaning at the intersection of the secular and the sacred, the artistic and the scientific. Topics will revolve around meaning at the center of psychology, religion, and philosophy. The meaningfulistic is the both and of the yin and yang of what it means to be. I mentioned in my last episode how I'm learning about the Enneagram personality types and how it was being used in psychology. Some have even assigned an esoteric spiritual element to it, but thankfully it doesn't take much to debunk things these days. A little background on the Enneagram. The earliest evidence that we have for the existence of the Enneagram is from around 1900 when it was, quote, discovered by George Gurdjieff of Georgia. He was a half Armenian, half Greek, and was a seminarian, but he left seminary in pursuit of the occult. He became heavily involved in the occult and the pursuit of it, traveling around the Mediterranean, Egypt, India, and Tibet until he came across a group of Sufis who lived in Central Asia. He learned the Enneagram from them. Originally, the Enneagram had been used in Central Asia for fortune-telling through numerology. The modern form of the Enneagram was brought forth by Bolivian teacher Oscar Ichazo in the 1950s. In his work, Enneagram of Personality, Ichazo developed nine personality types to match the points on the symbol, including principal features, motivations, and concerns. In the 1970s, psychologist Claudio Naranjo assimilated Ichazo's model into Western psychological terms. Naranjo also shared the Enneagram with his good friend and Jesuit priest father, Robert Ox, who introduced it to Jesuit circles after a period of theological testing. Ox studied the Enneagram system of personality and is significantly credited with bringing it to Catholics in the U.S. Don Rizzo is an ex-Jesuit who studied the Enneagram from Father Ox and is the head of the Enneagram research and study in New York City. Through his work, the Enneagram found its way into Catholic spiritual direction. So yes, you can either blame or thank Catholics for all this but I'll leave that up to you. I wanted to learn about the modern take on the Enneagram from a psychological perspective. So in this episode, I had the privilege of enjoying a meaningful conversation with my first PhD for the podcast, Dr. Jay Medenwald. I reached out to Jay because of an article I read during my research. His expertise with the Enneagram dives into research on psychological personality tests and their reliability. I was also particularly interested in why and how Christians use the Enneagram today. As a Catholic from Texas, being so far from California or New York or the New Ageism of the 70s, this was completely foreign to me. But as my father always said, what do you do when you don't know about something? You ask someone who does. 
This episode is only a sample of the work Dr. Middenwald has done on this subject for his upcoming book release. Jay served in the Air Force for nine years as a behavioral scientist, which included teaching intro to psychology and leadership psychology at the Air Force Academy, consulting and conducting research. He has a Master of Divinity in Apologetics, Ethics, and Biblical Studies from Denver Seminary, an MA in Psychological Sciences from the University of Colorado, and a PhD in Social Psychology from Baylor University in the great state of Texas. He is currently the Assistant Professor of Psychology at Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Who better for the Meaningfulistic Podcast than a psychologist with a Master's of Divinity in Apologetics? He is the Psych Apologist. For someone who likes the synergizing of disciplines, I love that title. This is the Enneagram and Christianity with Psychopologist Dr. J. Medenwald. Thank you for agreeing to have a deep conversation, Dr. Middenwald, also Jay. I can call you Jay? Yes, please do. All right. Thank you. So what interested me in finding you was I actually was doing a dive on the Enneagram. And I, I've i been a little bit uh, doing some research with it. The first time I came across it was about a year ago. And I did the dive on Gurdjieff, so the supposed originator of this, you know, mystical-looking, very complicated kind of esoteric symbol. And I didn't think it was that very interesting when I first came across it. And then I find these circles of Christians and psychologists that are actually using this for a purpose. And I thought, well, I thought it was just kind of gimmicky when I came across it. But then I realized there's this big undercurrent of people who are actually very interested in actually using it and implementing it. So I I wanted to get your take of where you first came across the finding elements of the Enneagram and what you do. Yeah. So uh, I first came across it with some friends uh, who do a ministry where using it for evangelism. So they were essentially trying to tailor the way that they did evangelism and apologetics to specific people by knowing their type. So they would say, okay, well, I know this person's type, and so I would talk to them this way, and then I'll be more effective. And so that's kind of what first introduced me to it and um, trying to figure out kind of what it is and how we could use it and if it's accurate or if it's going to kind of lead people to false conclusions. Okay. And you were already you had already been studying psychology and and doing your work in, in yeah. research psychology. Yep. At that point, I, I it was a couple years after I had uh, finished my master's in psychology, and then I'd been teaching um, for three years after I, I did my master's, and then it was during seminary, so it was about a year or so, probably out of uh, finishing teaching when I first came across it. Okay, so it sounds interesting. I I don't have any history with uh, evangelization. I'm kind of shy. I mean, you know, I don't want to be that guy that goes and uh, you know ask people how they how they feel about going to hell or <laughs> or slapping them with the Bible or even just being very you know uh, chummy with them. I, I I just don't. I'm not that good at talking to strangers. 
So how did that kind of go over with uh, newcomers to the faith or, or bringing in new people to Christianity? Uh, I don't know for sure that, I mean, they said that's what they did and it was effective for, and uh, more for like coworkers or people they would come across. I don't think it was usually random people they would walk up to, but, um, okay. but they, they seemed convinced that it was effective uh, and a good way to, to do evangelism, I guess, in a less awkward way and um, to not have to worry about some of those, those details about your own skills it was just about reading their personality and uh, observing some things so that you could um, categorize them uh, according to a specific type. Um, yes, the, the Enneagram uses uh, nine types and, you know, there's the big five and then there's MBTI, the Myers-Briggs, which is 16. And then mm -hmm. I thought, okay, nine, five, 16, what about 12? Why not the horoscope? Why isn't it? Why, why is the Enneagram or the, you know, MBTI or even other psychology tests even much more different than the Zodiac, you know, the, the symbols that people attribute? And I think some of your work was really getting into that. Yeah. So I guess any with anyone that categorizes people into types runs into the same issues that it's going to lose a lot of information by categorizing people into a type. So if you think of an introvert, an extrovert, right? If you've got someone who is maybe in the 49th percentile and they get classified as an introvert, whereas someone in the 51st percentile gets classified as an extrovert, right? They're really close. You can't tell the difference. Mm -hmm. right? Now you've categorized them in a way where they're now they're in the same category with people who are, you know, the, the 49th percentile is with someone in the, the first as the introverts. Where the person in the 51st percentile is with someone in the 99th and they're extroverts and you know someone's a strong extrovert versus a weak one that they're in the same category so you lose a level of um, accuracy and degree of understanding by categorizing people so that's automatically problematic um, but then you know with pretty much all typologies um you know they have other issues as well because they're putting often then several different factors like that into in the single category and so um, they're not really very accurate even the mbti people are surprised to hear that uh, researchers don't use the mbti because it's not very reliable um, they've got a couple of their dimensions that kind of similar to the big five mm -hmm. but the other ones aren't and and so they and they, they kind of miss a big chunk of personality whereas the big five which is what researchers primarily use uh, was developed by uh, early researchers going through the dictionary and identifying every single possible word that could describe people and then um, gradually like uh, clumping that list down into kind of okay these words are synonyms they're they're sim similar and doing that and making it with a more manageable list and then um, basically surveying people with a smaller list and then basically doing that same process, but uh, statistically. So with actual data from people to see what traits are very highly correlated with each other. And then they kind of lump together and get um, put together into one bigger factor. And so with the big five, you've got your big factors, big five factors would be, um, you can either think of it with the, the acronym ocean or canoe. I say canoe might be a little better because mm. it, um, it splits up better with how researchers are looking at meta traits now. Uh, but so in canoe, you've got C would be conscientiousness, 
a agreeableness and neuroticism, which sometimes you might hear as um, emotionality or emotional stability. So it has less of a negative connotation. And those sometimes are, are looked at as uh, the meta trait of stability, whereas uh, the other ones, so you've got openness to experience and extroversion, which actually the other end of extroversion is introversion, but um, scientists will describe it as being high or low on extroversion. And that uh, those ones kind of form sometimes the meta trait of um, plasticity. Uh, so th those are the big five traits, and those they name the big five because they, you know, um, mostly describe all of um, the aspects of human personality. Now, there's some things that it doesn't, um, uh, you know. So we don't want to kind of overstate the claim, but that that was developed through this lexical hypothesis of looking at all the possible words that could be used to describe that, and each of those traits has several different smaller facets that lump together so and, and they can sometimes be broken up or categorized in different ways so it's you know more if you think of maybe like 30 different traits that describe people and, and they, so they can have different levels but um that's that's kind of the gist of it and so that's what makes it the the big five better is that it's it's more accurate describes all the different aspects of human personality and then it leads to better predictive results without having uh, a lot of overlap between uh, traits so mm. if you have say two traits and they're very closely related and well then you only really need one of them um, and maybe the other one can get defined a different way with the parts that don't overlap and the big five does that pretty well without a ton of overlap All right so everyone fits on those scopes uh, or the gradation between being high and low in, in introversion and also uh, neuroticism and I never heard of the canoe uh, that's interesting so I'll definitely have to do more research on on the meta traits um, but they but that yeah the big five doesn't categorize into actual uh, classes of people or personalities right it just says that these are your attributes and these are where you lie on these similar attributes yep yeah so it'd be five factors that everyone has and so you would get a score on all five of those um, and it wouldn't even be high or low. It would be some, oftentimes it's as a percentile. So you could range from, you know, one to 99 or uh, sometimes it's a raw score. So if it's, you know, a, a test that has 10 questions per factor, you know, your score could range from um, probably what it would be 10 to 50 uh, or 10 to 70, depending on the scale they use. Uh, so they might give you a raw score. So you would get a range. And so that kind of recognizes that there is random and, and normal variation from day to day in people's personality. And, um, you know, over time, their personality tends to be pretty stable, but there are little fluctuations and changes, especially with different situations. And, and our minds more easily recognize that when, we, when we're not kind of categorized into a box. Does working with the big five uh, allow psychologists, therapists to cater their treatments in that way to say like, well, these are your strengths or these are, these are what happens when you're stressed. So let's move towards a different direction. Um, I mean, they can, and, and there's a push to, with a group of psychologists uh, that actually use a, a fairly popular version, modern version of the big five, uh, Colin DeYoung, it works with a group of other psychologists to um, work more with using a similar kind of approach toward mental disorders but the categorizations are a little different than how they have them with the big five, but the, the big five 
would map on to that to some degree. Um, so people who are very high or very low, um, but it's so the I guess more in therapy it can help recognize that certain being really high or low um, kind of might make it more likely that something might be causing issues, especially with neuroticism. And the hard thing, I guess, that people don't understand is not everything is an issue of personality. Sometimes things are normal human things um, that apply to people of any personality. Uh, and it's more of working out that kind of issue. Mm-hmm. Be things with um, you know negative self-talk or something like that. And maybe people high in neuroticism might be more likely to do that, but that's not necessarily what's causing it. And knowing the personality isn't going to necessarily help resolve it. Um, there's other ways that the therapist might help them resolve that. Right. Another reason why shouldn't lean too heavily on the personality because, you know, the behavior of the person has multiple reasons why someone's doing what they're doing. And, 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 and also, like you said, react different ways in different situations, just naturally. Uh, and I, and I think from the Enneagram, you did a, you talk a lot about accuracy and from what I gained from your research with the RHETI, they're basically saying that the Enneagram somewhere around the 30% accuracy rate. Yeah. Well, so the, that's the ready, which is the Enneagram mm-hmm. Institute's version of the, um, their scale. And so it depends, I guess, on how you classify accuracy, because uh, there's a lot of ways to do that. You know, you could do it in terms of test, retest reliability. So if someone takes a test twice, how often do they end up in the same one or you could also do it if you look at just the traits listed. So if a, a type has says, you know, make, makes 20 claims about someone. Uh, and so you could count the number of times that it gets them right versus wrong. Um, so th- there's a variety of different ways to do that. Um, I'm not sure. I don't recall what the 30% specifically was, but I know one of the ones where they get lowest on. So there was a study that had Enneagram um, experts categorize different traits so kind of a random set of adjectives and say which type would this belong to and they had uh, extremely low level of accuracy between them with how they rated that and i think that might be the one where that's coming from okay just in general you had several uh you know looking at your website so very full of information at your website you have breaking it down into what counts as reliability and the consistency of the tests and also, like you said, overlap that can happen between the two. One of the things that I was finding that was kind of the problem why I was thinking of horoscopes was the Barnum effect. Basically, if you could say things that are general and kind of apply to most people, people will mostly agree with them and say, yes, that's that's me. And And you mentioned some things like you have a tendency to be critical of yourself. Yes. You have to be a great deal of unused capacity, which you have not turned to your advantage. That's everybody. You have uh, some personality weaknesses. You're generally able to compensate for them. Again, everybody was raising their hands and it's kind of kind of like one of those things. Um, if you're able to put certain people into groups, you know, based on even something as their preferences for food, um, you're going to have these kind of things like, yes, I belong in this group and I don't belong in that group. And that Barnum effect was interesting to me because, you know, there's all those biases that lead into why people agree with a certain group or a certain mentality or a certain 
this is who I am. And you did some research on on the Barnum effect, and I can't remember the other term at the moment. Yeah, so the, the original study was by Bertrand Forer, F-O-R-E-R, yes. and so sometimes you hear it called the Forer effect, and that might be what you're thinking of. And what he did in that study was he, he gave his students a personality test one week, and then next week he gave them results and gave them all the same result, and then um, they all rated it as basically highly accurate, and then he told them it was all the same, and they were kind of, um, they laughed about it and everything, and uh, it's a great study. I actually uh, am trying to get it published in, in my book in the in the appendix, the full full article, because I think it was just really important to read because that was published in 1949. But it, when you read it, it's like this is exactly what's going on with the Enneagram. And uh, when, with that study that he published, he actually started a whole new line of research that a bunch of other people picked up, kind of whether they were skeptical of it or because like, oh, that makes sense. And I can see why um, personality tests are um so big right now because it was a thing back then you know post world war ii and um you know more assembly line type thing and companies wanting to kind of get the most out of their workers um, and so um personality tests were kind of popping up everywhere by people who were just writing the results based on these just broad general statements that apply to everyone and it makes it feel really accurate so often it, it's about the kind of internal thoughts that we don't share with other people. Um, but it's really, yes, it is accurate. It does describe you, but it also describes everyone. And so that's the hard part to get people to understand is like, it is accurate. It is true. It's, it really is you, but it's it's true of everyone. It's not distinguishing you from other people um, like the Enneagram types claim that they are. Yeah. And you say some of the reasons why people think that the Enneagram works so well is because you know, they, they, it's mostly coincidence and, and people want to believe in it and, and they think that it works because, because of other factors, they want to believe that it worked or they want to believe that the things that they're learning about themselves are true. Right. right. Yeah. And, and uh, she does some of the research with that um, for started, a lot of people started to look in some of the factors that predict whether people will say a personality test describes them. So with these universally valid statements, and so some of them might be that, and so a lot of the research was done with astrology. So people who thought, for instance, astrology was more scientifically valid, were more likely to um, see their results from astrology as descriptive of them. But even apart from astrology, you have a lot where, you know, people who are um, looking for personality feedback, when they're stressed or in a crisis, um, all these types of things are more likely to uh, view personality feedback as more personally descriptive of them and accurate. And so you get a lot of these different factors going on, which is pretty common from what I've heard with people with the Enneagrams, like, oh, I, you know, things weren't going great or I was having trouble in my marriage. And then I discovered the Enneagram and it, it like opened my eyes to it. And I mean, you hear this in uh, Ian Crone and Susan Stabile's book, uh, The Road Back to You. Uh, that's kind of how Ian Crone came across the Enneagram. Uh, well, this is a little different in terms of just how it kind of seemed to describe him so well, even though he's skeptical, but it's it's kind of strange how, how almost word for word, how he describes coming across the Enneagram and getting involved with it is how a, another psychologist in an article in the 50s wrote about when he coined the term actually, or made the term more popular, the Barnum effect is to say, 
how uh, you know some young um, business person selling a personality test will come and you know, present it to a manager somewhere and say, "Hey, here's this test. Um, I'll let you take it and get your results, and you'll be so floored by it that you'll want to buy it." Basically, and that's kind of exactly kind of how Chrome came across it. Uh, so it's kind of a, a weird, eerily accurate kind of thing, which has a whole lot of people describe Enneagram. But uh, the other couple, so um, Beth and Jeff McCord in their book write about how that's how they came across the Enneagram was kind of during a stressful time in their lives as well. And it seemed to describe them so well and help them. And I know I've heard that a lot personally from people who I've talked to who use it as well. You mentioned how they were using it, the Christians were using the Enneagram for uh, evangelization, but... I wanted to ask you, because it seems like you have more conversations revolving this topic in relation to Christianity in general, why do Christians think it's powerful? Other than the people that have written the books, why is it sticking so much? So I think there's a lot going on, but I think a, a big part of it, though, is the, the Barnum effect. And, and with these universally valid statements, they seem extremely accurate like eerily accurate and that's the term i hear people describe and so actually when i kind of um give presentations I'll, I'll give this fake personality test and I'll, I'll have that as one of the terms and using these barnum statements a lot of the original ones that Ford used in his uh, paper in 1949 people say there were multiple statements in there that felt eerily accurate and i think that's a big part of it is that it seems so accurate um at first when you read it and it's like holy crap how how could this know that about me kind of thing and so once it does that then um and, and that's kind of the litmus test and then everything else kind of flows from there and just kind of people stop being critical of it at that point because it's kind of already made them feel like it, it described them or people will say it they feel heard when they when they read the, the type descriptions and so that really i think draws them in and at that point that they're not really often open to listening to criticism anymore um, because they just know it works and so there's and i guess the extra component on top of that which gives it something that other personality tests don't have is a spiritual dimension where it's often described as something where it can kind of help you spiritually or bring you closer to god or things like that which really isn't anything implicit within the system it's nothing inherent in it i guess in the proper word um the system as much as it just when you you know realize what your faults are like anything you can kind of work on improving those uh, and so the enneagram kind of helps people do that or claims to uh, so it can help you have a better relationship with other people or with god um, but that's really no different than, you know, a, a friend or family member or pastor saying, hey, I notice you have this sin um, and we let's work together on maybe resolving it. But I think it feels safer um, coming from something uh, more private and not with another person where you can maybe read and discover on your own, on your own terms, in your own way and, um, and, and not as a directive away. So. Uh, there's that aspect of it that I think really draws Christians in as well, because I think they do want to do right and, um, you know, draw closer to God. And so this is, they view this as a way to do that in a safer way than doing it with another person. And, and they're using their personality types as a way to move them towards spiritual growth 
um, I guess by the same, you know, number trajectories. Yeah, so so the, the lines on the Enneagram tell you kind of where your issues are. And so if you, if you are type five, you know, your sin, um, it tells you what your sin is. And then it tells you kind of how you can uh, grow like toward which other number to help overcome that and, and to, um, I guess, transcend your sin. And so it's got that worked into the whole system that is really helpful in that unique way. Right. I heard that it was tied. So there's nine elements or nine portions. And I know the seven of them are tied to the seven deadly sins or someone applied them to the Enneagram. And I, I at least should mention that Richard Rohr was probably one of the bigger names and people can say, well, you know, the Enneagram in Christianity is tied to Catholic mysticism. And I would pretty much want to caution anyone of listening to Richard Rohr and saying that he is espousing Christian or Catholic mysticism in a way that's actually um, apologetic or useful to people. Um, have you gone into some, you mentioned some authors, were there other authors that Christian authors that really champion the Enneagram as, as effective? Yeah, so actually the first Enneagram book that was published was an actual you know, a Christian book uh, published in 1984, I believe. Okay. It wasn't, uh, I don't think, specific towards Christianity, um, okay. at least in the title. Um, it was by, I, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but it was a smaller kind of published book. And then the next kind of the real major, first major, Enneagram book published that, you know, kind of got wide distributions with a major publisher was Helen Palmer's book, The Enneagram. That was in 1988. And she's a former psychic. Um, but uh, shortly after that, Rohr published his book uh, from the, the Christian, the Enneagram, a Christian perspective. Um, and so that was in 1990. And so that kind of brought him a level of fame. Uh, and then Really, a lot of the authors since then have mostly been secular. Um, Jerome Wagner, for instance, is a clinical psychologist who uses it and writes on it. And he was a practicing Catholic, but he's not really practicing anymore. But he still, I talked to him um, in, in an interview, prepping for the book, um, still kind of identifies that way. He's just not really practicing. Uh, so his books are not from like a Christian or Catholic perspective or anything. And same with some of the other people doing the Enneagram, but then more recently, uh, a lot, a few other authors have done it from a Christian perspective. And so the the one that really seems to have taken the lead and being most popular would be The Road Back to You by Ian Crone and Susan Stabile. Um, and so they're kind of big names uh, from a Christian perspective. But then you also have uh, Beth and Jeff McCord also. Um, do it, Tyler Zock, which he, he hasn't written like a any books aside and concern no um, with like a major publisher, but he has several I think self published books on the Enneagram. Uh, each one of one of each type is almost got done going through the type and does some other podcasting and um, conference like they just wrapped up an online conference. The Enneagram um, is Alice Freiling. Um, I'm trying to think some of the other names. Uh, but uh, InterVarsity Press has published quite a few Enneagram works with different authors um, and their Christian publishers. So theirs are um, 
attempting to present the Enneagram from a Christian perspective. Wow. So you are, uh, you've coined yourself the psych apologist, and I think that was a, a great phrase. So you, I heard your podcast, you, when I got more history on you, I heard the podcast that you did with uh, Apologetic Simplified. Okay. And it was a what's what psychology brings to apologetics. So at least give them a, a shout out and thank them for interviewing you. And and on your website, I, when I looked, did more research, it says you grew up in a non-Christian home in central Minnesota and you devoted your whole life to hockey. And then, you you know, after several degrees, you came to Houston. And when did you or you didn't come? You came to Texas. My, my apologies. Yeah. When did you, it sounds like you, researched your way into Christianity? Could you talk just briefly about that? Yeah, so it was uh, when I was in college. Uh, so it's um, about almost 20 years ago now. But uh, I, I wanted to figure out what, if anything, about religion was true. I was in a psych religion class, or actually I think I was signed up for it uh, the next semester and uh, kind of looking forward to starting it. And so I just kind of wanted to figure out what, if anything, about religion was true and also kind of understand why um, people would believe things that were so obviously false. <laughs> so I was kind of looking at everything, um, religion from every perspective, and um, I came across Christian apologetics and I was like, okay, this sounds good, but it can't be true. Otherwise, I would have heard about it before. Um, I'm just being fooled. I just don't know how yet. And I, I you know, also being in my psych courses at that point didn't want to fall into the trap of you know like confirmation bias and other biases we talk about as psychologists and so i made sure to kind of go back and forth between different sides and was kind of surprised to find that um christians were um had the best arguments for their faith and, and better responses to the criticisms and um than than all other worldviews and so so well, i guess this makes sense um it makes better sense than anything else and so uh, i'm going to become a christian and i guess it only also makes sense to be fully devoted to it and not just do it kind of half-hearted otherwise what's the point and so i made that choice kind of just very um coldly i guess kind of you would say and um haven't looked back ever since um and so that was, yeah, I said almost 20 years ago now, uh, around, you know, end of 2005, I think. And then, um, you know, since then, so I was, I was in college. And then since then, I, I went on to a master's degree and then seminary and the PhD. And as I learned more um, about psychology and everything specifically, I, I always kind of questioned my own previous research. And so I kind of reexamined the previous arguments to see if I still think they hold up and um, and for the most part they do. So, um, and, and I, I'm probably more critical of my own beliefs now than I ever was before. So I, I in that way, it kind of gives me more confidence that knowing that Christianity is true. Right. Yeah. I, I like that. A lot of people don't really probably understand that uh, logic your way into faith. But I think some of the times, again, back maybe back to personality, some people just need their own way to find things out on their own. And some people lean heavily more on faith and then some and and blindly, or maybe, or, or they need less to be convinced. And so other people need to really hit a lot of books 
you know, it sounds like you really challenged your own beliefs and thought systems to come to something that's as intangible and ineffable as God. So yeah, and and I hear people always say you never, no one's ever argued into the faith, and you know, I kind of take. Um, that bothers me, I guess, would be the way to say it, because, it, you know, I was essentially argued in, at least in the way people often use that, but so were other people, and, you know, like C.S. Lewis or things like that. And, and I know it may be not common um, and, and probably we shouldn't be argumentative when we have discussions, but uh, that's, you know, relates to the Enneagram. And one of the positives, I think, from it is that it helps people recognize the difference between individuals and how we're not all the same. And, and I think probably other personality tools can help us understand that better. But that's something that I think so often we fail to recognize in our theology is that God created us to be different. And uh, we all need different things and, and we'll work and function in different ways. And that's a good thing. It's not something to get upset about or, or to feel offended about, you know, um, but we shouldn't be pushing on, you know, what, we need on other people necessarily. And I think apologetics can help pretty much everyone. Um, but I, I recognize that not everyone needs it. You certainly don't need it to be a Christian or to have faith, which is sometimes how it kind of comes across. People will say, well, you can't be a Christian if you don't really understand why you believe or, you know, things like that. But that's not at all the case. And so um, I, I kind of take more of an approach like we should um, kind of use it and help for our own spiritual growth and and where we need to for helping others and doing discipleship. But we also have different people we're trying to reach or different ways that we need to grow and things that we need. And we, you know, kind of don't need to get overwhelmed with things we're not ready for or don't have the time for. And so, um, you know, it just comes back to uh, Romans 12, you know, uh, we're all different, right? The, the eye is the eye and not the foot. And, you know, we each serve our different role. And if we all tried to say it's sort of the same one, we'd be missing a big part of the population or a big area of um, spiritual dimensions as, a ch as the church. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Lastly, I see your background in, in psychology and theology, religion, apologetics. And one of the things that I was really interested in from your website is the topic of epistemology. How do you know what you know? How do you actually know what you're interpreting as real? So the books that you mentioned is like Think Again, Tactics, Influence, complex simplicity and the one that i have yet to read which is you've mentioned several times is thinking fast and slow how does something like thinking fast and slow well why should i or anyone read thinking fast and slow how's that yeah so so i, I give presentations on uh psychological apologetics and how psychology can can help us and uh, it, it's usually a pretty fun presentation because it's very activity laden we do a lot of kind of brain games type of things uh, but i start uh, i'll ask people i say okay as an audience um list as many logical fallacies as you can in 15 seconds and i'll do that and usually you know as an audience they'll shout out um usually get about seven or eight you know like straw man ad hominem things like that and and so the audience usually gets around seven or eight um and then it's like, okay great now Let's do the same thing, but now list as many cognitive biases as you can. 
and pretty much always I get one and it's always the same one. It's confirmation bias. And then I just sit there and I time it and, and it's crickets. <laughs> had maybe one or two groups get a second one, but that's it. And it's just the, if you look on the Wikipedia pages, there's more cognitive biases listed at, than there are logical fallacies. And mm. Um, I think part of that reason might be because there's a larger amount of overlap between them as well. But the point being is that a lot of people just aren't aware of the different ways that things affect the way that we think. We all, I think, have this tendency to think that we are making very kind of rational, carefully thought out decisions all the time uh, when really we're not. Our, our mind is often on cruise control and it's making decisions automatically without our even realizing it. And then even when we're weighing things and, and making more, um, putting more cognitive effort toward our decisions, uh, it's still being influenced by a lot of those unconscious biases. And so one, one for example, um, the McGurk effect, if you, I've got, um, I don't think I've actually posted my video of that, but this is an effect where scientists will uh, take a video of someone saying ba ba ba, you know, like a oh. sheep would say ba, and then they they dub over it with a sound of someone saying da da da, and so you hear a D sound, but visually you see a B sound, and when you watch that, even if you know it's a trick, you watch it, almost everyone still hears the sound that they see. So they hear the B sound because our visual processing overrides our auditory. So you, you literally actually hear the wrong sound and that's real time. That doesn't even account for then, you know, more complex problem solving things. So our mind makes immediate, very quick decisions and judgments on how to rate and evaluate and judge things in ways that um, we would never even know intuitively unless we have actually studied these things and so reading a book like thinking fast and slow can help us be aware of some of these things and how some of these processes might affect our decision making so that we can make better decisions or maybe we can recognize where others might be likely to make um, incorrect decisions based on some of these kind of common biases so that we can uh, avoid them in the way that we kind of present arguments or evidence Right. And, and also your brain is making predictions and it, more often than not, it makes the wrong predictions on what you think is correct or what you think is what you think you remember or what you think you heard. And that kind of a, leads a lot into that uh, gray area of what you actually think, you know, or what you actually think you experienced. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And tons is uh, I, I teach an intro psych course right now and in the textbook. Um, you know, the it, it's talking about how much information our, our mind has to process at a time and uh, refers to some research that says uh, our minds take in about 11 million bits of information per second. And so we're really only processing about 40 bits per second because there's just so much when you think of all the different sights and sounds and sensations, our mind is immediately filtering out so much of those because it's not relevant um or important so yeah it's just it would be mass overload if we could pay attention to everything and, and so our mind helps us do that really well but sometimes it ends up getting things wrong because of uh, some of these mental shortcuts that it relies on mm -hmm. lastly would you have any kind of 
uh, caveats or, or I guess warnings for someone who's going to look at the Enneagram and, and say, I'm going to use this for my personal growth? Yeah, so this is actually kind of what I wrote last about in my book as I was finishing up. And so I'd say if someone's just using it on their own personally without kind of exposing others to it, um, you know, the, the the issue, one of the problems with the Enneagram is it says a lot of true things, right? Uh, because it's things that are true of everyone. And so it's hard to say, well, this is false um, because it's like, well, no, like this part might be false for you or someone. Um, but generally, a lot of the claims are true for everyone. And that's what kind of makes it so hard. But uh, I would say with some of it, just to, to never let your guard down with it, because it does make a lot of claims that are untested or perhaps even harmful. Um, so for instance, the claim that you can never change types, like th that's, I think a really harmful claim because well, one, it's false, but two, like, that really limits growth. And we know that from a lot of research on say learned helplessness that, you know, people don't think they can change or get help. Like they um, do not respond well. It's kind of like a, creating a trauma. But the other part I would say that, that that is problematic is that when we are using these tools, right, we're clicking on the websites or buying the books or something from these other people, we are um, implicitly supporting them and what they're doing and allowing them the opportunity to promote their message um, beyond the scope. And it might not even be their message of the Enneagram. It might be bigger than that. So, for instance, Richard Rohr came to fame because of the Enneagram, but now he's seen as a spiritual leader and you know his most recent book the universal christ is you know him promoting universalism that most christians wouldn't um ever agree to but you know because of the the fame that he, he achieved because of the enneagram um you know now he has the opportunity to promote that message or other kind of um I, i'm always hesitant to say heretical messages but ever other i would say maybe sketchy messages or things that most of us would agree on and and by using his materials on the enneagram we're kind of helping him do that or any other enneagram author you know like helen palmer right if you're using her materials as a former psychic like you're helping her push a certain kind of worldview that she stands for and things that she believes that are kind of implicit throughout her books or her other work. So I'm going to say we want to just be very careful in, in doing that and uh, if we choose to do that. Okay. And could you plug your book? I, I, I mean, I guess I could, but it's it's going to be a, a while yet before um, it's done or hits the shelves. You know, I just submitted it, and so we're going to have probably – a lot of edits and rounds of feedback and back and forth to make sure things are kind of stated the right way and um you know that there's no typos or anything in there so we're still a ways out but hopefully uh sometime next year it'll be out um so maybe if you keep a lookout or um i'm going to be actually starting to tweet more about the book this uh on twitter so um or i guess it's x but i'll, I'll be i'm going to be posting specific things about either writing the book or a survey I did uh, to kind of collect some data from people about their perceptions of the Enneagram. And so uh, there, you know, it's people doing that had questions or they put questions in the comments. And so I can't really directly contact them about it, 
um, just with ethics or things, but uh, I'm going to do and kind of answer some of those questions at a broad general level and kind of want to give people maybe a little bit of a behind the scenes look at how science works and how we collect and analyze data. Great, great. Is there, is there a working title or? Um, there is. It's not going to stick. Um, so okay. like breaking free from your number or something, but I think that's a little long and wordy, but so okay. um, I crowdsource it and we'll see what other people might come up with. But um, and some other ideas, I have a whole list of ones that I have kind of written down as ideas and I kind of change my mind on what sounds best every other day. So we'll see and maybe get some feedback from my editor and go from there. Matt, no problem. Well, I guess just in closing, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this deep conversation. I went everywhere that I was, you know, wanting to go. I'm very happy with everything that you've done. And I'm very glad that I stumbled across your, your website and the articles that I found and also the, the podcast that you did with Apologetic Simplified. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Thank you. And there you have it. Psychopologist Dr. J. Medenwalt and his take on the Enneagram in light of Christianity from a psychological perspective. I'm so glad to find someone who is unafraid of trekking through this borderland of science and religion. Find out more about Jay and his work and some of the references to the studies and books mentioned in the show notes. If you want to know about the creator of the Enneagram, see my links to the show on the mystic George Gurdjieff and his sacred dance. The sacred dance is it's fascinating and it's completely unlike anything you'll probably have ever seen. I think the Enneagram is more interesting now that I've learned more about it, but the verdict is still out about how much more I want to spend time researching it. I've heard it used in a practical way to help people know themselves and others better. It's very possible that as a tool it can be very effective for personal or spiritual growth, but we should always be skeptical to completely believe in something that seems to mysteriously have all the answers, right? We get caught up in the novelty of something new and neglect critical thinking and precedent. After all, there is nothing new under the sun. Always weigh both sides of any argument and find the balance in the middle ground. The Meaningfulistic is more than just a podcast. To receive my short video messages and meaningful quotes about philosophy, religion, and psychology in your social media feed, you can find The Meaningfulistic on Instagram, TikTok, and join the Facebook group. If you would like to be a guest on the Meaningfulistic podcast, please email me at meaningfulistic at gmail. I would love to have a meaningful conversation with you. I leave you with the words of Edgar Allan Poe. Believe only half of what you see and nothing that you hear. And if there's anything that cognitive science tells us is never, never really trust your own brain. Maybe cognitive bias is what the Bible is referring to when it says, lean not on your own understanding. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's being meaningfulistic. Thank you and God bless. <laughs>